It's a delight to welcome Chris Holmes, who is a professor in the Faculty of Theology at Providence Seminary, is active at St. Margaret's Anglican Church, and is actually in the discernment process around ministry. And so I am pleased to have him here uh, with us to help us unpack what are clearly lessons with challenge. It's quite a privilege to be here with you. Um, as Jamie mentioned, my home parish is St. Margaret's, which is not too far away from here. I've heard a lot about St. Benedict's Table since I relocated to Winnipeg a couple years ago, and so it is, it is indeed a great, a great honor to be with you uh, this evening and to be your, your guest preacher. I speak to you this evening in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, the Bible has a great deal to say about idolatry. Serving gods other than the one true God is something people, including Christian people, are prone to do. But to hear the Bible's warnings about idolatry is not an easy thing to do. Why? Because many of us are unsure as to what our idols are and what it would mean to be delivered from them. In our Old Testament reading for tonight, we meet Joshua, who is cast as a great prophet like Moses. It is he who thunders, Thus says the Lord. It is he who speaks to the people of Israel on behalf of Yahweh, urging them to refute the polytheistic beliefs of their neighbors in the ancient Near East. Joshua reminds the people in verse 2 that long ago your ancestors lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Israel's ancestors embraced many gods, each of whom represented some power or another. But God is a God who was faithful to God's people. In the intervening verses, which the lectionary does not cover, verses 4 to verse 13, our text recollects for us the Lord's gracious acts toward Israel, a recollection which is to evoke a response of obedience and complete devotion. These verses tell us what Israel believed about God's beneficent care in the past, namely, that God is Israel's protector, provider, and guide. But the heart of the reading for today is from verse 14 to the conclusion of the chapter, which was read by and large just a few minutes ago. In this section, we hear many familiar verses, at least for those of us raised in the church anyhow. For example, verse 15 Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Familiar, I'm sure. Indeed, the word serve occurs some 14 times in the chapter. Israel is exhorted to serve the God who brought it into being with the whole of its being. I would urge you tonight to hear Joshua's words as being prophetic words that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, speak to us today. We Christians, like the people of Israel, find it exceedingly difficult to reject pervasive societal and cultural influences. Indeed, we Christians are quite skilled at baptizing ways of life that are contrary to the gospel of Christ. As a theologian who has a special interest in the work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I must point out that Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass, happened 70 years ago this evening. Jewish homes, businesses, and places of worship were plundered across Nazi Germany. 
In a wonderful article in yesterday's Globe and Mail, we learn of a Canadian by the name of John Berries, who was spirited out of Berlin after Kristallnacht and ahead of the Holocaust. He was one of the fortunate ones. He was among 10,000 children that were brought to England from Nazi-occupied Europe between 1938 and the start of the war in September 1939. The complaint of the Nazis was simply this. This town, the town being Berlin, this town is sick with Jews. This town is sick with Jews. I mention this horrible chapter from human history in order to point to what happens when a society fashions a god in its own image. Hitler regularly invoked the Almighty in his speeches. But the Almighty he invoked was not the Almighty we encounter in the life, death, and resurrection of the Jew, Jesus. Rather, his God, the Nazis' God, was an ideological God. This God underwrote the fanatical racism that characterized the regime. One of the classes that I'm teaching this semester at Providence Seminary is called Christology. I have asked the students, and I'm aware of the fact that there's at least one of them um, in the the congregation tonight, uh, to write a response to an article that appeared recently in the Globe and Mail entitled, Taking Christ Out of Christianity. Taking Christ Out of Christianity. It is about a so-called avant-garde pastor, Greta Vosper is her name, she is a United Church pastor in Toronto, who argues that we should define God, capital G, or God, small g, according to our own worked-out definitions of what is holy and sacred. According to our own worked-out definitions of what is holy and sacred. What she is arguing is that God needs to be thought of in ways that make more sense to us. This is because the Bible's portrait of God, she argues, is outmoded and downright offensive. She has a point insofar as much of the Bible's talk of God is confusing to us and often bewildering. But I worry that she has made an idol out of our supposed common sense. I believe that she is profoundly off the mark when she argues that 21st century ways of thinking are what Christianity needs if it is to survive. The portrait of God that Joshua the prophet gives us is one that is indeed strange. Here again, verse 19 and verse 20, the heart of our passage. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Yes, this is strange. Hearing God described as being jealous, holy, one who consumes, that is also difficult, too. I'm going to make the case very briefly that the portrait of the God of Israel that emerges from our passage is a profoundly good and life-giving one. But that is, again, not to diminish the force of Joshua's words to the people which are jarring. Again, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Hmm. How are we to understand a description of God as holy and jealous? Greta Vosper, the, the pastor I just mentioned, would point to this and say that this is just another instance of what she calls, and I quote, 
big godism, big godism. That is an intervening, all-powerful authority who must be appeased to avoid divine wrath. But I think our text is saying something quite different. Holiness is precisely what sets, sets God apart from the rest of the created order. Holiness points to God's purity, God's awe-inspiring character. Why can Israel not serve a holy God? Because Israel cannot devote itself to God as God completely requires. Indeed, the Israelite worshiper recognizes that the purity of God which she is to imitate is a purity which she is unable to imitate in all facets of her existence. In other words, what I believe Joshua to be saying to Israel, rather bluntly, is that Israel cannot devote itself to God as God completely requires. I suspect, however, at least in my more suspicious moments, which are far too many, I'm afraid, the description of the God of God as a jealous God is even more off-putting. In Exodus 34:14, the Lord is referred to as, and I quote, one whose name is jealous. One whose name is jealous. I must admit that I stopped dead in my tracks when I reread that passage this past week. I could almost hear Greta Vosper's voice saying, Aha! I told you so. Yet, just one more example of the Bible's outmoded portrait of God. Big Godism that oppresses and means nothing for people today. Again, I would respectfully differ. Why? Because there is good news for us in this description of God as a jealous God. God is not a jealous God in that God is petty or stingy or waiting to unload retribution upon all who would dare contravene his will. Rather, this business about God's being a jealous God subverts so much of current thinking in Joshua's time and in our own time as well. In Joshua's polytheistic world, the gods were not jealous. People called up many different gods for many different favors. Like us, they lived in a consumerist society of sorts, at least when it comes to or at least when it came to deities. The people of the ancient world had gods for almost any and every occasion. Can you imagine then what it would be like for Israel to hear that God is jealous, or better, zealous, I would prefer zealous, about the quality and depth of his relationship with them. A God who is zealous for his people and for their faithfulness does indeed care about what they believe and how they live. To be sure, a God who is not zealous would be much easier to swallow. It would be far easier to have a God who did not care about the quality and depth of his people's covenant relationship with himself and their service to the world. It would be less disruptive to worship a God who did not demand that his people be fully engaged and reflect God's purity to the outside world. And it would be much more comfortable to have a Bible shorn of calls for expressions of complete devotion. But the most, most remarkable things happens in, our, happens in our text as we read on. After hearing about God's jealousy, God's zeal for God's people, and their devotion to him, Israel responds with these shocking words. The Lord our God we will serve, and him we will obey. The Lord our God we will serve, and him we will obey. 
After hearing Joshua tell them that they cannot serve the Lord, that the Lord will not forgive their sins, that the Lord will turn and do them harm after having done them good, the people have the audacity to say to God, we will serve this God. The NRSV translation of him we will obey is a bit clumsy, clumsy because it is more in the original a matter of hearing God's voice, of being in constant conversation with God. That the people want to stay in that conversation, even as they know they will screw up and screw up profoundly, is testimony to their basic belief that they will experience grace. The conclusion that I come to when I read the signs of the times is that the church so often promotes an understanding of God that is influenced more by enlightenment ideals than by holy scripture. The common perception of God today is one in which God is pictured as a kind of vague spirit of acceptance, whose love does not include judgment, whose kindness comes without expectation. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer would call it. The God of the Bible is a God who has passion, who does give a rip, who wants his people to be zealous about their being children of God. The Christian community, who is in communion with the God of Israel, must continually choose whether to be faithful to God or to some other competing reality. Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. The Greta Vospers of this world would have us define God according to our own definitions of what is holy and sacred. But the gospel throws a furniture of such an understanding around. The gods that we would fashion are utterly ineffectual in the face of sin and death. But the God that the Bible gives us is one who rages against sin and death. A God who rages in Jesus Christ against whatever compromises our true humanity. God wills to be our only God. That God wills to be our only God is testimony to the power of God's vulnerable love, which takes the Son of God to a bloody first century instrument of Roman execution. The cross is where the zeal of God for the people of God and for the world that God has made finds its ultimate expression. Joshua's prophetic words are hard to hear, aren't they? But they are life-giving. They call us to serve a God who wills that the heart mind, and soul of his people be conformed to his own character. Pervasive societal and cultural influences mitigate faith in such a God. But God is patient and generous. Even when God judges Israel, think of the exile to Babylon, it is only for a time and it is with their restoration in mind. When I reflect upon what this special text from Joshua teaches, it is this, it is that the gospel includes law. By that I mean that our passage gives us lots of gospel. That is, it gives us a God who acts, a God who graciously calls a wandering polytheistic nomad by the name of Abraham, or later Abraham, to live in covenant with the one true God. This God brought Abraham's ancestors out of slavery, doing great things in their sight. Verse 17. He protected us all along the way that we went and among the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people. What we have here then is the gospel. God's gracious creation and formation of a people through whom God wills to bring blessing to the world, to you and to I.
But that is not the end of the story. What God's act of creating, maintaining, and perfecting of a people before him includes is law. The law under which Israel stands is simply this. God wills that Israel become what God has made it, namely his child. God is jealously, zealously, consumingly committed to remaining Israel's only God. For Israel to remain as God's people, it must have its mind renewed. Thus Israel stands under law. That is, it must put away the gods of the nations, all other pesky deities. It must reject pervasive societal and cultural influences that would have it serve gods whose ways lead only to death. For Anglican Christians, uh, many of whom are used to accommodating themselves to the culture at large, this is surely hard to hear. Anglican Christianity, at least in its late modern North American form, understands itself to be something of a chaplain to the culture. It resists the idea that it is to become a covenant people, a people who belong to a God who is zealous for his people and who wills through them to carry the good news of the gospel to the world. We want to hear of the love of God, but we resist the idea that God's costly love includes judgment of our wayward and life-denigrating ways. That we learn to serve only the Lord and obey the Lord's commandments is surely life. Indeed, the way to life is obedience. For in being obedient to God's will to be our God, we come to take a hold of the life that is truly life. God does God's people good. God does God's people good. I encourage you this evening as we gather around the table wherein God gives unto us the life of his Son through bread and wine, to believe again that God is good and that to serve God is life. Revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Thanks be to God.